Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Ah, oh, good morning. Good morning, John. How are you feeling today? Um, you know what? I've been, I've got to be honest, I've been feeling a little bit weird. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, ever since, ever since I was involved, um, I was the perpetrator of a hit and run that I did nothing about. Oh, really? Um, I've been having these really strange kind of visions, um, of an entire world covered in decaying late eighties computer technology. It's probably nothing, right? It's probably nothing. You know, I, I was going to say, because I've been feeling better than ever. And it all started when I inserted a rusty rod directly into my thigh and then was hit in an unresolved hit and run accident when I ran outside. I, ever, I, ever since then, I've had this strange ability to control anything metallic and integrate it into my flesh. I, it's, I've been, I really, it perks me up better than coffee. <laughs> Well, I'm, I for one, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for you. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't even know what we're doing here anymore. Welcome, welcome to the uh, Power Rangers review cast. Uh, Blue Ranger Ashley checking in, joined as always by. Actually, uh, I think you would get you would have more Blue Ranger vibe than I. I don't know. What, do do you, do you identify with a particular Power Ranger? Does one <laughs> click with you? Uh. Not really. No, <laughs> I've got to be honest. Uh, I was not raised on the Power Rangers. Um, do they? Do they not? Do they not have Power Rangers o- over there in jolly old England? Uh, I think yes, but I think it kind of passed me by. Um, so I, you mm, know what? Okay. You know what? You know what? I'm happy to take that. I'm happy. Like if I'm giving off blue Power Ranger vibes, I'll take that. L- listeners out there, based on our information from Power Rangers up to the Ivan Ooze movie. Which Power Rangers do you think the two hosts of the show are closely aligned with? <laughs> Weigh in on the comments below and at twitter.com, at the Lit Crit Guy, at Durovania, at Horror Vanguard. And you know what? Why not, why not pay to let us know which Power Rangers we are at patreon.com forward slash Horror Vanguard, where you can talk about Power Rangers with us as much as you like. <laughs> okay, until the very end, <laughs> until the very end, that was maybe like the best segue we've ever done on this show. <laughs> Hey, these these megazords don't pay for themselves. Uh, I mean, it's well known that all 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 podcasters carry multiple megazords. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, but we're, we're, I promise the Power Rangers thing is going to make sense in like twenty five minutes. If you just hold on with us, it's going to all be okay. Bear with us. Um, Bear with us. We are we are um, covering another film that has been long requested here on Horror Vanguard. We are covering the, the the landmark body horror cyberpunk nightmare that is Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, maybe the best introduction to the Marvel Cinematic Universe that one could ask for. Now, it's a bit of a cult classic, but I still think it's kind of underappreciated and, 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 and underseen. So to that end, I'm very I'm very excited. <laughs> for Ash, <laughs> just to explain to all the people new to this film, um, what is Tetsuo the Iron Man about? 
One of the greatest wonders of our shared human condition grows from an exploration of love through Ian Bogos' alien phenomenology. This lets love exist beyond the base encounter, beyond the contient mirror and the self and the other. Love becomes a thing in and of itself, an element that in turn experiences us. We tend to ensconce love into industrial, linear teleologies. Anniversaries, necessary phases, and legally applied sanctions mark a clean process for love, from flirting through procreation. But this approach closes our hearts to love as a thing with a capital T. Man and the metal fetishist have no meet-cute. They never date, court, or get engaged. They experience a disorienting, fluidic love from the perspective of entanglement itself. This loving pair constantly, spontaneously generate new social machinery to suit the environment of their connection. Such events have no beginning. Beginnings are only ever created in retrospect once a palpable turning of a page can be felt. Everything is always beginning until it's over, and even then, there is only ever the emergence of new forms of beginning. To borrow a paragraph from Ontocartography, an ontology of machines and media by Levi R. Bryant, this is not a cause for despair, but hope. The fact that topological fields must perpetually struggle with entropy also entails that they can be changed. No topological field, no ecology of machines, is so rigid, so enduring that it cannot become otherwise. Love is an ecology of machines. Love has its own ontologies. Love is more than just a feeling or a symbolic vehicle for a set of social strictures inscribing the boundaries of human mating rituals. Love is not contained within us, but is an emergent property of which we are only a part. You will warp and twist and change, and it will be beautiful. The you who fell in love can never be the you who continues on with that love. As the metal fetishist says, our love can destroy this whole fucking world. Together, let's turn this fucking world into rust as we discuss Tetsuo the Iron Man. Yes. Boom, 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 boom. Cue music. Cue music. Yeah, cue, cue killer. <laughs> one, of the, one of the best scores I've heard in a hot minute. A genuinely incredible piece of work. Um, yes, let us, let us talk then uh, about Shinya Sukamoto's incredible Tetsuo, the Iron Man. And let us begin, as we always must, in the formalism zone. The formalism zone. Oh, okay. So so we are uh, ta- talking about uh, Tony Stark, MCU, number one, number one superhero, uh, hashtag Elon Musk, hashtag Iron Man. <laughs> and now, now that I'm done prosaically musing about the horrifying destructive potential of love, I believe we should talk about cyberpunk. Uh, yes, we, this, this is often classified as a cyberpunk horror or as a cyberpunk body horror. Um, mm-hmm. but like, let's, let's kind of take a step backwards and try and look at the bigger picture for a second, which is like, what, what even is cyberpunk firstly? And maybe, a, and a second question is, is cyberpunk possible in modernity? I mean, this is an eighties movie, 1989. So like, what, mm-hmm. what is cyberpunk historically speaking? And 
is that still something that's kind of culturally possible? So th this, I think, is really interesting because it kind of leads us into the kind of the first discursive problem that we're going to have to wrestle with here. And that's that there's a really palpable distinction between a type of cyberpunk known as Japanese cyberpunk and kind of the neuromancer cyberpunk that we would recognize in like the United States and England as being the cyberpunk of cyberpunk. Yeah. Um, and Japanese cyberpunk is more like Shinya Tsukamoto's first film, The Phantom of Regular Size. Um, but then also um, other really iconic films like Burst City, the anime Akira, the movie Wild Zero. Um, that's that's more like the Japanese cyberpunk aesthetic and kind of thought process. It's grittier. It's dirtier. It's it's not neon. It's industrial. Yeah, yeah. You know, like in in kind of neuromancer style cyberpunk, it's often very clean. You know, even when things are going horribly wrong, it's things are kept up. You know, like the the technology that's interwoven with our bodies might be glitching and malfunctional and kind of janky, but it is nevertheless well-maintained. It's not just mountains of rust and cable erupting from your flesh like we see in this film and we see in Akira and so many others. A 70s, 80s phenomenon carries on into the 90s. Um, and I think you're you're completely correct in sort of identifying that divergence between you know, um, Neil Stevenson, uh, Willie uh, Gibson, obviously, is the one in, in America that everyone yeah. talks about, uh, Philip K. Dick, um, and a very distinct Japanese aesthetic and mode of cyberpunk. And I guess... Yes. And I guess the kind of question is, like, if cyberpunk is a response to a particular historical situation, a particular kind of relationship to technology can does is there still such like is that still possible because like i think a lot of like the uh the writing about technology now either lapses especially in fiction tends to lapse into a kind of like techno libertarian utopianism like uh that's why i can't read a lot of neil stevenson's work i find it just a bit kind of politically questionable or being like yeah. very kind of rejecting technology like it's apocalyptic it's the end of the world there isn't any kind of future so like what what do you think is cyberpunk still this thing which is which has a kind of like resonance or is it just a kind of set of aesthetic markers now so i i think i think of like cyberpunk 2077 the 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 hit game when i think about this and, and i think about that like you know like that, that game's launch was absolutely plagued by like problems that anyone else would have labeled as cyberpunk problems uh, but in, in, I think it kind of dr drills home this idea that a lot of what cyberpunk is now is kind of just surface aesthetic. You know, you've got yeah. those neon signs a la Tokyo. You've got, you know, interchangeable digital limbs and cyber hackers and like it's stuff. It's just it's a bag of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I think of like contemporary examples of things that are trying to grapple with cyberpunk and there's a lot of success out there, but I think like I think of the big name things like Black Mirror, mm -hmm. and like so much of Black Mirror is just like the most tired, well worn, boring, unimaginative. I could go on, and and I think part of the problem that we're facing is that kind of the original wave of cyberpunk and then Japanese cyberpunk, they're like looking at contemporary problems and contemporary issues and forecasting. Right, doing doing one of the things that science fiction loves to do, and that's guessing ahead. 
at, at likely changes in technology and problems humans will face along the way. Mm-hmm. I think a problem that like Black Mirror is a really good example of is it's kind of just a reaction to the current moment. Yes. Yeah. You know, like the the things that happen in Black Mirror aren't so much like, oh my god, wouldn't it be so much worse if this happened? It's like, no, that's pretty pretty close <laughs> to what's going on presently. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? What's the extrapolation? What's the kind of forward momentum? And I actually think the kind of collapse, the, the the limitations of cyberpunk in the present reflect the kind of slow collapse of imagination in contemporary technology. Web3 is is not anywhere near as interesting or as open or as accessible as the very first generation of the web was. Um, yeah. It is the desperate monetization of everything rather than any kind of like genuine technological break. So like maybe in a sense, kind of the cyber the cyberpunk that produced something like Tetsuo is just not possible anymore. And I think I think what's I think in, in a way a lot of the Japanese cyberpunk can endure in ways that cyberpunk 2077 style cyberpunk can't. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Precisely. Because like 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 Tetsuo and Body Hammer and like Akira, like this body of work, this style, I, I think it's like still looking at like you know, like like we just got the news that like every everyone's blood is just a slurry of microplastics. Yeah. You know, like we're we're literally like like living so adjacent to what we see in Tetsuo so many years, like forty years later now. And I think the problem with Cyberpunk 2077 is that, like, when you look at, like, Web3, you get all of the problems of Cyberpunk, every, everything bad that they said was going to happen, you know, like, like, all of your assets are now tied to these mysterious digital keys that can be changed on a whim by sufficiently clever hackers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and now they, they keep trying to, like, conjure a new revival. They're attempting to resurrect the corpse of Web3 every other week now, and it's like... Web Web three two Web three point five and tied into new like like oh your soul is going to be on the blockchain now and all of your deeds will be openly ranked on the blockchain so people can make objective decisions about you and like that's going to collapse instantly like the rest of this Web three because it's a shell game and a grift yeah and I think that that that's the material difference between these cyberpunks I I I completely agree actually and I think this probably opens the way for us to talk about something which I don't know a huge amount about, as we've already learned in the course of this episode. Let's talk about the Power Rangers. Go, go, Power Rangers! Actually, we're going to talk about Tokusatsu, uh, which which is what the Power Rangers is. Uh, <laughs> and then Power Rangers is my chosen example here, because if I said Kamen Rider, I don't think a lot of people would check in to, to that. Maybe Ultraman? Any, any Ultraman stands out there in the audience? <laughs> Definitely, definitely some Godzilla people out there uh, from. So the uh, fun fact, the director of this movie actually has a minor role in Shin Godzilla, a movie we've previously covered. Please go check that out. Oh, I didn't realize. Um, That's very cool. That's very cool. I actually didn't. I didn't realize that until yesterday either. (laughs) Anyway, um, so tokusatsu is a style of Japanese television, right? And like if, if you if you know anything about Power Rangers, it's it's so heavy in like simplistic practical effects overacting lots of physical lots of physicality in the performance right people talented in like you know like um fight choreography martial arts but then also practical stunts doing backflips and these really over exaggerated moves 
And then you have like uh, a lot of like the same kaiju sentiment is in there, right? People in costumes knocking over cardboard cities. Um, that's kind of like like getting a little bit of what tokusatsu is. Yeah. Across and, th- and this movie is also tokusatsu, right? Like this movie also engages in that same format, right? You know, like the the effects work is all practical, right? Like the budgetary concern is all very, I'll say, efficient. And it's interesting to kind of like. Well, often we talk about like horror as as this kind of like emergent property of cinema right like horror is conjured in the watching you know like like these these iconographic sets these symbols that we tried to we're gonna oh my god like i i don't want to spoil anything but we have an episode on it follows coming up and this is i'm i'm restraining myself greatly to get into a rant that i'm going to get into on that (laughs) one Um, but tokusatsu functions in a similar way, right? Like the, these properties can emerge across genres, and I think that allows us to like it, Tetsuo the Iron Man is is a film that is all about material. Yeah, you know, it, it is it is all about the physical substance of of art and what we make and how we can make and how what we use informs what we do, and it's link all the way through that like like one. So one of the reasons I really love, I was thinking about this while watching. Um, Tetsuo a couple days ago was that like I was like man I love this movie it's just like it's so much fun to watch Tetsuo like this movie is like a blast and then I'm like oh that's because it's reminding me of Power Rangers it's reminding me of Godzilla it's reminding me of Ultraman it reminds me of Dawn of an Evil Millennium like like all of my favorite movies have a lot of apparently tokusatsu sensibility in them uh so yeah I don't know it's a little interesting thing a little interesting also check out Japanese Spider-Man uh, it was a Spider-Man TV series made in Japan in the tokusatsu style, and it is way better than anything the MCU has been putting out. <laughs> watch, watch, Spider-Man, Spider-Man has a car uh, that's got a Gatling gun. Spider-Man has a mech uh, that he can pilot. Um, um, okay. Spider-Man I'm a book. occasionally I'm a book. uses say guns. No, say no more. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's available wherever the internet provides you with things. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, but I think this is actually a really good point, right? Linking the kind of, like, kind of really taking film back to the idea of the image, right? And mm-hmm. so, so obviously that depends upon stylization, that depends upon simplicity, because that's how you tell the story. It's very notable, of course, that Tetsuo has very little dialogue in it, and it prefers mm-hmm. to tell its story imagistically or, or expressionistically, right? So it isn't trying to fit into a very narrow kind of model of mimetic realism mostly one because it can't afford to but secondly that 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 practical limitation is the very ground from which all of this creativity comes out of oh absolutely absolutely and it also reminds us that like there's a tendency to appraise art kind of in vacuo to just looking at the piece itself and not connecting it to the to a broader series of things from which art is inexorably interwoven and connected yeah and and much and much like man and and the metal fetishists at the end of this movie like it's difficult if not impossible to separate these things and and to trace back clean break points where you could cut them apart and being so tatsuo if you haven't seen it, it has a reputation for being like it's an intense movie if it's your first go through. If you're not a weirdo who just watches all this stuff constantly, <laughs> um, and, and and to recognize that, like, oh, this is this is kind of coming out of a lot of the same artistic sensibility that gives us 
Ultraman, Power Rangers, Godzilla, like like there there are overlaps in these Venn diagrams. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it's a way of kind of demystifying the process a little bit, right? Um, yes, and that, that that's just I mean, like last thing I'll say on this point is like that's also incredibly important that we tend to have this view of art as not being work. Art is something miraculous that is born from the void and given to you by the muses and then you kind of birth it into existence and it's not a labor that you have to perform it's this gift you give to the world and therefore you should not be paid for it and artists aren't really workers and they're just kind of people who loaf about and paint and and that is that is a propagandistic myth designed to sever you know to alienate more of the working class from its efforts yeah yeah and and to kind of like delibitize film, make it, it seem as if it's Ooh, some, yeah. something that just kind of appears. Like making this film was hellish by all accounts. Like mm-hmm. like crew the crew quit uh, like regularly. Like it sounds like it was deeply difficult to work on this film. Like in a really profound way, doing doing like intensely difficult things with no money. And putting mm-hmm. it like putting like if this hadn't become a kind of cult hit, it would be forgotten, right? Because it had and I think, no I, money behind it, and like art mm-hmm. is. I think it's you're making a really important point, right? Which is that art is work. It's it, there is a labor that goes into it. Yeah, and I think even Shinya Sukamoto said that, and I, I don't. I've never seen this quoted directly. I've always seen this reported secondhand, so I don't know if this is legit or not. But apparently towards the end of end of making this, he thought about burning all of the reels of film because it was just so awful to make this thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't I can't say I blame him. Like, because when you watch it, like you can see it. It's all there on the screen. This, this movie, this movie has like an unbearable weight to it. Like one of the things that I find really uncomfortable when watching this movie is that there's like the sheer volume of material that's that's always on screen. There's just like so much stuff going on and not in like a a visually it's not very visually noisy in a lot of places like there's almost a harmony to a lot of the like static appears a lot in this movie very strategically and and there's almost like like there's there's a harmony to white noise static it's it's so, so much nonsense it's nothing but in this movie like these amalgams of metal they're just like covered in stuff like the outside of like a bad sci-fi spaceship and there's something that, like, imagining a human body inside of that is just, like, so physically heavy. Yes, absolutely. Like, there, I, I think that's what makes this kind of feel such, like, there's such an intensity to watching it, right? I think... Mm-hmm. Um, just should, we, should we wrap up our formal discussion and kind of move into, move into some discourse? Yes. Sorry, I'm, 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 I am. For listeners behind the scenes, uh, we have a shared notes document that we use to organize our thoughts for the episode. And I am right now watching watching the Lit Crit guy's cursor go around in the dock and work some behind the scenes magic. <laughs> and in total suspense, I cannot wait to see what moves where. Well, uh, I, all all I was doing was putting a little break in there, <laughs> uh, so so we can maybe wrap up the formalism zone by talking about superhero cinema let's let's do it we are talking about iron man uh, so we we have to the, redeem my the, terrible joke from earlier the iron man we should say the iron man oh yes 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 yeah there's there's iron man and then there's the iron man 
Um, in, in a way, it might sound a bit strange, but the, like, there's not there's a huge amount of commonalities there, right? <laughs> well, I, th- I think there are interesting overlaps and interesting departures when kind of contrasting this, because in a lot of ways, man and the metal fetishist become super powered. Right, they they both have the ability to control metal and, and have transformed their bodies into something powerful enough to destroy and resurface the earth. You know, like that is this is a superhero origin. And the same like if we watch Akira, the same thing's going on there, right? Someone's becoming infinitely powerful. It's a superhero origin story. Um but I think I think some of the departure is that like like when I was watching this, I was thinking about like transformation scenes in the fantastic four spider-man turning into the man spider um iron man the the uh, the other iron man lowercase iron man like having having that reactor in his chest that keeps the metal safe or something who knows um and and i was thinking like oh like even even in those moments of body horror where, where these kind of marvel dc superheroes are transforming into something nightmarish there's there's still this element of control, right? The transformation just alters parts of their body. And, and it, even if it, in the case of like the Spider-Man's The Man Spider, when it alters the mind itself, there's a sense that in there somewhere is still Peter Parker, right? Is still the hero we know and love, is still a good little guy who's going to pop out at the right minute and save us all. In Tetsuo, the same kind of transformations that we see in, in these other Iron Man-type superheroes, uh, the, the transformation is whole. It, it, it is complete. You are born into something new yeah, by the end of, end of the process. There's no hybridity in the MCU, right? There is no hybridity. All of these people are kind mm-hmm. of like... They're like little, little um, uh, automata that are being steered around on the inside by the kind of true person. Um, mm-hmm. whereas like there is no hybridity, there is no, e- even, even in the case of like Stark, who uses technology as a means of literally keeping himself alive, you like all of the sort of blood and kind of fragility and, and, and sense of becoming something kind of wholly other sort of gets stripped out just to make him into like, just a guy like everybody else who's just happens to be really rich and really smart. Whereas you're completely right mm-hmm. in Tetsuo, the point is like, like the MCU thinks that technology is a kind of straightforward tool, right? That's always that always has a kind of givenness, always has a kind of it is to hand, and is always used in a singular direction, right? But Tetsuo makes yeah. makes the far more interesting point that actually no, technology uses you, mm-hmm. and has a kind of consciousness to it, and if you let it, it like you will become something other than what you thought you were. And, and this, this, this I think is incredibly interesting to, to, to kind of stress. There's a teleology in the Marvel movies, right? T- Tony Stark is Elon Musk. Technological progress is unambiguous in how good it is. It's always good to invent new things because that pushes humanity forward. And there, there isn't a lot of weight being pressed on like, okay, well, like, if Tony Stark is capable of creating a, a race of servant robots and is selling them to the UN... Why, why is that? Why, why are those robots not cleaning the ocean? You know, why, why are these other things that could be happening, but they are nevertheless way less interesting than folding into weapon technology as weapon as its own kind of ontology? Yeah, it's, it's always the perfect tool, right? The, te- techno- mm-hmm. the technology human relationship is always distinct, right? Humans use, yeah. use technology, but like 
no, that's that isn't how it works, right? Like, like, like you pointed out. I, I mean, Cronenberg was talking about this super excitedly in the context of Crimes of the Future. That like there are microplastics in the blood. Like, uh, we are going to become something else because of that. Like, we are not even on a molecular level. There's no such thing as a kind of like distinct human. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Like, and and this is. In the context of Tetsuo, right, like what makes man become this kind of metal monstrosity isn't the metal fetishist. It's it's the same thing that turns the metal fetishist. It, 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 they're both the same kind of entity in a way. The metal fetishist is beaten as a child and has a piece of metal lodged in his skull, which which produces his transformation. And for the man, he was simply shaving and he nicked himself with a razor. Yeah, absolutely. Suddenly, and, and suddenly like, uh, and it's it, it, what's interesting about Tetsuo is, is the bodily transformations on screen always like uh, te technology kind of takes a toll on the body in in, in this in, in really interesting ways, right? It, it to become something else is is something kind of like terrifying, but it's also something that kind of uh, it, it hurts, right? You you are you are literally warped and 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 remade from almost from the inside out you know he nicks himself shaving and like sees something kind of jutting out of his skin like it isn't it's not something that comes from the outside that you grasp hold of it's something that mm -hmm. comes from the inside outward into the world yes absolutely like it, the the change is, is so even even so the first scene where we see that the man has a, a little metal pimple growing on the side of his cheek you know like 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 there's there's so much like great unnerving terror in that because who hasn't spotted like an errant cyst or a mole or some other kind of growth and been like oh my god it's over what is this thing you know like like this thing that is being produced by my body but nevertheless is alien to me the thing that thinks it's a body yeah absolutely right the body can just do stuff <laughs> right mm -hmm. everybody everybody knows that experience um you know if you if you're if you're someone who uh is is chronically ill um if you're someone uh with a physical disability you know the body can just do stuff sometimes and you you are we can be alienated from ourselves right you can mm -hmm. you can you know th this moment of kind of looking at yourself and going i'm not even sure is that me? <laughs> like, you know? Right? It, and what, what makes this really unnerving, too, is that by, by the end, the man is like, he says he's never felt better. Yes. You know, like, yeah, like yeah. He, he, is, he is in to what and who he's become. You know, like, like the, this, this turns out to have been really positive for him as a positive experience. And I think that these kind of horrifying moments of bodily transformation, like, that is horrifying. So, so the metal pimple is horrifying for both us and the man, you know, because we, we we've all been there. Uh, it's unsettling. But then by the end, like it's only horrifying for us now. For for the man, he has found some kind of peace here, you know, for for reasons unknown and that will never be known. He likes where he is, but for us, the viewer, that's even more horrifying because the thing that we can identify with, the man in himself, is now a tank is now the lower half of a tank amalgam yes <laughs> yes who has a boyfriend uh yes yes uh, they they 
they they they they certainly love each other in some very strange uh <laughs> in some very strange ways but they're happy together which is which is wonderful and they set out it's all that counts all 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 anyone wants is a, a tank mecha that they can ride around in with their metal fetishist boyfriend to destroy the world <laughs> like uh, what else what else is there the, I just want I just want the Norman Rockwell life, right? I, I just want yeah. a partner, and we can become a tank mecca and turn the whole world to rust. Yeah, I mean, like it's, it's very. I mean, some people might say that's quite corny, quite you know, tra- <laughs> tra- very traditional of you. But like, I think everybody wants that, really. <laughs> um, there's one other other thing that I wanted to kind of mention, which is the way that a lot of this transformation happens is mm-hmm. through. Um, as you said, a lot of practical effects and the the predominant practical effect is through stop motion. Um, and I don't want to kind of like, it's it's such a visually interesting film, but like the animation work is just mind-blowingly good, isn't it? Uh, yes, this this is like some of the best stop motion I've seen, especially stop motion with people. Yes, absolutely. It must have taken so much time and effort to get everything lined up correctly. But I think the use of stop motion is interesting because that necessarily impacts how we think about the relationship between the transformation of the body and and the experience of time within cinema. Because stop motion... Now this is really interesting. Because like transformations we think of as being either instantaneous or very, very slow. Right. Mm -hmm. So like Tony Stark can instantly put on the suit and become Iron Man. And it happens like that. Uh, You wake up one day, you look at yourself in the mirror and you recognize yourself as someone old when you never thought of yourself as that previously. And it's happened over years without you even noticing. But like what's interesting here is the way in which like the stop, the, the, the formal elements of stop motion animation kind of fracture the smooth linearity of cinematic time. Right, it becomes some transformation becomes something that like happens in fits and starts. Right, it it's it's very difficult to pin down, and I think that's a really interesting way of tying theme and technique together. The the, the point you just made about speed and transformation, I, I think, is really interesting because the thing the thing that jumps to mind for me and something that's been aggravating me in a lot of like MCU c- cinema is how superheroes exist with their masks. Right, like the the functionality of the mask ostensibly is to offer some kind of protection in the case of some heroes and to conceal identity in the case of others and perhaps both. And, and the, the idea that your mask could be ripped away because it's just a piece of cloth on your face. Yes. Right, like like the, the, the fact that wearing a mask means if you've ever worn any kind of, I mean, I take that back. We've all been wearing a lot of masks lately. It gets a little awkward Wait. the longer you have to wear a mask. <laughs> Zing. And like, you know, like I've got I've got friends who like the covid mask has caused acne breakouts, you know, because they've had to wear it for so long. I've got other friends that like we've all faced our own uncomfortabilities with wearing this thing. Yeah. And like, you know, I just I just imagine like Batman having a Batman mask shaped like ring of acne on his face because mm-hmm. he has to wear the thing for eight hours a day. But now they're all like these cool, convenient nano metal digital machines that appear and disappear at will. You know, they're they're no longer physical objects. They're now just wishes. Yes. And I think Tetsuo contrasts with this so well. Like, 
this so much of this movie is devoted to like pus and mysterious oil and goo and gel mm-hmm. you know like like the, this movie is very organic despite being about metal yeah you see the actors sweating like mm-hmm. like you see like they <laughs> they they just like they filmed this in a tiny apartment uh you know they had to light scenes themselves they're covered in this stuff and you see you see the kind of like grime and you see the kind of like all of this all of this transformation is like such a physically embodied thing yes and i think that that's so important to to return the body to to this kind of body horror to return the body to cyberpunk you know, to, to see how the body is a machine and becomes machinic through these kind of social interactions. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's another there's another element here, which is like, uh, there's a lot of Tokyo in this film, um, but it isn't. What's interesting is like, it isn't like the Tokyo of like a kaiju movie or Godzilla, where it's all like high rises and like the 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 business district, and it isn't like. Uh, you know, this the kind of cyberpunk vision of like media screens everywhere that William Gibson noticed when he first went to Japan in the 90s. Like it's 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 very it's almost quite featureless. You know, there's so many shots of them kind of like zooming through the streets. But there is this kind of sameness to the environment, this sort of constant repetition of the same. Uh, and it's very disorienting. It's like it's kind of uh, it's like it's it's you know it's almost like a kind of desert there's there aren't any kind of features that you go oh i sort of know where we are and i wanted to know what you thought about the kind of psychogeography of this film's movement so the scenes where the metal fetishists and the man have to transit from point a to point b aren't are never done in ways that are kind of human readable right like they they don't despite the fact that they become a, a tank that is its own boyfriend by the end of the movie it, while we lead up to that point they never have like a supercar that they get in to chase each other, right? Like they both have like rocket feet. They, they, they have like super powered Heelys somehow, like, and it's shot in stop motion. You know, like the actors take a step forward, they shoot another shot, they take a step forward, they shoot another shot. So they have this really disorienting way of moving without moving. Um, it's, it's almost like they're skating, but their legs never move through, through the city. And I think so much of our relationships to geographies and to spaces are kind of defined by how we transit through them. You know, how we think about spaces in terms of accessibility, what we think they're used for, how long we associate traveling through them with, if if I said that correctly. It's informed by kind of transportation technology. Transportation technology then becomes an extension, a, a way to mediate human memory and human thought and human art. Right, like the, the kind of intermeshing with metal that we see in Tetsuo has already happened, and it happened inside of our minds. Uh, yes, exactly. And this brings up a kind of bigger point, which is in the work of um, the uh, French uh, philosopher Paul Virilio, who talks about the fact is um, there's a great book that he wrote uh, back in the seventies called um, "Speed and Politics." Um, Mm-hmm. And Virilio says that like there's a kind of like technical vitalism that changes history, and he says history uh, moves at the speed of its technology. So like so uh, it's it's speed which is the determining feature of how 
history of how like modes of production shift right speed is a kind of like engine of destruction and it was this that i was thinking about like watching those moments of transportation there is this mm-hmm. uh it's it's a kind of like as as he put it he he was interested in what he called the the uh, the study of dromology, right? The way that technology's uh, speed is now drone-based. But like we, mm-hmm. h- history has become this thing which moves at the speed of the technology that uh, we create. And that speed has become so quick as to actually break down our representational capacity. So like in many ways, I found that those scenes of them kind of like t- turbo running through the streets of Tokyo to be like, yeah. to be like, this is weirdly ahead of its time still. Yes. And I think that's really interesting. And one of the things that like really helps this movie to hold together nearly 40 years later. And that's like, no one's, no one's kind of come for the space that this movie takes, you know, like, like there is, there's so much ground here still. This movie still feels so fresh. Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe, maybe one more thing that we should kind of talk about is, how this film sounds. We've talked a lot about how it looks, but let's talk about how it sounds because it, it's maybe it's maybe the best thing about the film. It, it's easily one of the best. And I think like, it, for me, this comes down to like the soundscapes that they create, like the Foley work in this is amazing. What gets to have a noise and how they make those noises. Like there's a, there's a, there's a scene early on in the movie where the metal fetishist has this like massive iron bar and he's about to insert it into his leg. And and one of the first things he done, does with it is like run it like like he bites down on it and he just like drags the ridges of it across oh, his teeth. So good. And, and 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 the sound they play is like is something akin to if you took that same iron bar and like ran it across the edge of a concrete block. Yes. Like there's so, like this movie has like to my earlier comment so much like disgusting dripping visceral weight and and a huge part of that just comes from the soundscape that we're dealing with here. And we also have Chu Ishikawa's score. The Eisenrost. <laughs> uh, that was the name. That was the name of his group, right? Um, the, yeah, the, yeah. The Iron Rust. Proper goth industrial name there. Like uh, Ishikawa's score is just incredible. Like this is it is it is no pun intended an absolute banger. Sisters of Mercy could never. Uh, it's like echoes of like um, I th- I thought like um, late 80s Depeche Mode in there as well maybe mm-hmm. um, there's a really kind of like strange jazzy number in there which is a massive break from the like some super like intense industrial stuff happening um, yeah it's it's obviously it's so worth worth watching this film but it's so so worth listening to it um, Ishikawa's score is just so good and and in a lot of ways like this this, the score itself feels like really historically aware too right like like there's something about this that would feel at home in like ishikawa could totally do a score for like metropolis or modern times like like this is just so it, it it feels like hammer on steel it is like so perfect for the context of this film yes i what a great description i think speaking of which then maybe we should talk more a little about technology and yes the kinds of technology that this film covers where 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 would you like to begin so one thing that i think would be worth talking about is how this movie uses desire as technology what what are you what are your kind of thoughts on desire technology and the iron man 
like desire is always mediated through something, right? There's always a kind mm -hmm. of like mediating factor. And increasingly technology, like, isn't that what technology does for us in lots of ways? There's the, there's this uh, complex set of mediations at work in just in like going onto social media of like, how do you, how do you mediate between friendships, between uh, sexual attraction, between romantic attraction, between all of these different facets of our, of desire. And like desire is also something that technology magnifies, accelerates and intensifies in different kind of flows and manners, mostly because it's now become so integrated into our social uh, and even our kind of mental structures. Uh, what, what about you? What do you think? Um, I, I completely agree with that. <laughs> no surprises there. Um, what, what I find to be really interesting about this movie is how it like makes sure that we know that there's no way to fulfill desire without some kind of technological mediation. Like, like every single thing that is desired in this movie is defined by the technology that achieves it. There, there, there is no kind of... The, the technology is never sublimated into the desire itself. It is the desire itself. You're back. Oh, good, good, excellent. You missed you missed a brilliant and uh, groundbreaking take about technology and desire. Uh, well, I could, I could, <laughs> I completely agree. I I couldn't agree. Just edit this in. I completely agree. <laughs> that's that's how much I trust you. <laughs> good, good. No, I was I was just saying that. At no point in this movie is desire. Try, does the movie try to sublimate the technology back into the desire? It makes sure that we know that desire and technology are totally interwoven and that you cannot achieve your desires without some kind of technological mediation, which means that that technology therein inscribes the limitations of and defines what those desires could be to begin with. You can't desire outside of the technological bound. Yes, absolutely. And you can't, you can't, you can't even exist outside of that, right? Bodies. Yeah. The, the other big technology in this film are bodies. Right. We are we are in, mm -hmm. we are so enmeshed with technology that you can't you can't exist without it. Myself and probably quite a few of the listeners uh, use technology such as corrective lenses to help us see, yep. see better. Um, like you're listening to this on technology. We, we mediate and, uh, and organize not just our desires, but our our very physical selves through technology. Right. Uh, and I sorry. Go on. Go on. I was, gonna, I was I was just going to say that like I can hear you out there in listener land, you know, saying that, oh, well, we can desire beyond the, the kind of limits of what technology inscribes and what the body inscribes, because I can I, I can desire something that cannot be fulfilled by technology. I could desire to live in a space colony, you know, and, or I could desire to have some kind of a body made out of pure information that exists somewhere in the cosmos and what I would say to that and what I think Tetsuo really drives home is that, no, that is still desire defined by the limits of our technological relationships. Like, like those desires are merely attempts to negate or transcend, but they are necessarily defined by where technology stands and how our relationship to technology is currently functioned. You know, the, the dreaming that we do is defined by the materiality from which we dream. Yeah, and what a great what a great way of putting it, right? 
And isn't it so telling that like so much memory and so much of this film is like mediated by television screens, right? Mm -hmm. And not not a surprise given when the film is produced the late 1980s, a few years away from like the infamous lost generation of the 1990s in Japan with the the first technology bubble and subsequent crash. Like if this was made now, like the technology would be a lot more ephemeral. It'd be a lot, uh, it would be a lot more omnipresent, but it'd be a lot more ephemeral um, because it would be like the integration of technology into our into our skin, into our hands, into our eyes is a lot more immediate and at hand, right? We are prosthetic beings anyway. There's nothing we can do about that. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. There's there's no way we can get around that. Um, like we we are all in some senses cy- cybernetic beings now. Oh, oh, absolutely. Like the prosthesis isn't nearly as like flashy as Cyberpunk 2077 or as gross as Tetsuo, but is so so many of us rely on and can no longer function effectively without a tiny computer augmenting our own cognition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The technology uses, and it, it uses lives us. In, yes, and it, and it lives on you and in you as part of your hand now. Like even even on just a really flat material level, there are so many things that we can no longer do because it's a given that one of our hands will be consumed by this tiny computer that augments our cognition. Yeah, precise, precisely. I I I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Obviously, um, and and this is why it raises so many interesting questions, not just of like bodily transformation and corporeality, but our relationship to technology and the ways in which our kind of desperation to enact a divide between uh, a kind of pure contained sealed off monadic subject and actually the more mm-hmm. the, the sort of industrial cybernetic subject that is always the becoming machine it, it just can't hold right you can't you can't preserve yeah. you can't preserve yourself from what you are already Oh, oh, exactly. Like, at no point in this movie could man have been saved from his fate. Even if he didn't want it. No, like, by by the time we meet him, he is already this metal being. He's just unaware. And even before those moments, in in moments before the movie, he, he lives in a societal system in which this is going to happen. You know, the, the the ingress of metal into the body is a given in the world in which the man finds himself. And so the creation of the metal fetishist man-tank combo at the end is already done, right? Like, it is in the process of beginning. It just hasn't emerged yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, do you want to maybe talk about that relationship a little bit more? The The... the the relationship between our salary man and the the metal fetishist the the greatest romance of them all <laughs> <laughs> well what it, what i think is really interesting about this is that like i, I don't i don't think the metal the metal fetishist or tetsuo the iron man gets a, gets enough play as like an example of like queer horror cinema yeah it, and i think that just the subtlety, the strangeness, the level of alienation that we're dealing with, the way that technology in the body is represented. You know, we, we, we get this moment where towards the end of the movie, the, the metal fetishist. So it turns out that 
the man and the woman um, nearly kill the metal fetishist in a hit and run accident. And then they have sex while his dying body watches. Um, spoiler alert, he doesn't die because he's already a metal Superman by that point. Um, fast, fast forward. Uh, the metal fetishist and the man have engaged in epic combat uh, for reasons. For reasons. Reasons, um, yep. Yeah, yeah. D- during, during the course of their fighting, though, like the 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 metal fetishist is very very openly like in love you know by by some measure right like we 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 get this amazing the amazing lines that i quoted in the precy right you know like about their love destroying the world right and and their love bringing about like this metal rust future and so there's this amazing scene during their conflict though where they're like uh, you know, you know. By, by by this point, their bodies have been totally infused with metal. Like almost nothing of their flesh exists anymore. They're 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 constantly in a state of flux in terms of what their physicality even entails. Yeah. And so, so they're floating in this void together, and and they're connected. You know, they're both of their arms are connected by this metal umbilical cord, and and they're they're floating in each other and with each other, and it's this romantic moment. Uh, that that suspends the action and the chaos briefly you know, before they're fully entwined as one and and they go to completely resurface the earth and, and renegotiate all technological relationships from that point forward and i think that this is such like a great example of how queer cinema can re-entangle itself with with other things right where it doesn't just have to be this kind of the, the way it's been kind of recuperated by by these like capitalist machineries and social technologies like Netflix. Go on Netflix, queer cinema is a thing that pops up during Pride Month or whenever they make a new season of Queer Eye and it's its own little channel that's neatly and cleanly segregated away from everything else. Yeah. You know, like it is it is contained within a bubble. It is its own given thing. It never bleeds out from that. And I think Tetsuo is like, no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's way messier than all of that. It's everywhere. It's infused. You know, it's just like the the Iron Man itself. Yeah, you can't you can't you can't get away from it. Like desire is everywhere. It is this. And what is the machine if not a kind of more efficient mechanism for the distribution, intensification, and acceleration of it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, this is such a good discourse, and like, I mean, th- there's a lot that's like well-worn territory with talking about this film that's like really thoroughly covered, like the psychosexual imagery and like Freudian readings and kind of like queering Tetsuo. There's a lot of really good stuff out there for those subjects. Oh, completely, completely. Um, but it's like, it, if like, what does this tell us then about this kind of like ontology of love, right? It that's what that's what he says at the end, right? The love is good. Love is going to destroy. Going to destroy the world. Lay it to rust. Um, I, I I'm really interested to kind of like try and pick that apart a little bit. Well, I think I think like this is such an interesting counterpoint. Like so, so much of the success of Tetsuo is is because the movie is counterposed from how we and, and how society's various hegemonic forces position things right like the technology as you said is a given right it's something neutral it's something that we're decidedly in command of and we choose what happens yeah even though that's not the case on any level yeah right you you have you have this kind of white collar employee 
upward mobility, doing the right thing. He commits a hit and run and then does something horrible to, to the person that he nearly murders, right? You know, he, he sows his own doom. Yeah. And it's also that way with love, right? Because, you know, dominant, you know, love would have saved him, right? His, his clean, discreet, and hegemonic love for woman would have pulled him from the metal and, and saved the day in the end if this was like an MCU film. Um, but love, love is much more multifaceted and complex and shifting and uncertain. You know, lo- love is a transformational force. You, you encounter this thing and it's going to make you something different and you do not know what it's going to do with you. There's, there is a kind of like dangerous possibility, right? This idea of like, what would it mean to allow yourself to become something truly new? Mm-hmm. And it's 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 painful. It's 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 physically demanding. It, it involves this kind of like ceaseless accumulation of stuff onto and into and through the body. And by the end of it, the man says, you know, that he's never been happier. Right. Yeah. And it, and it's it's and it comes off as like there's something sort of sweetly sincere about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's something like. I think one of the things that makes the ending of Tetsuo so troubling is like, it's too easy. It's too much of an easy out to read the man as having been corrupted by the metal. And now the metal fetishist is in charge. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and he's, he's controlling his mind or, or, or something. I think that's too simple, right? That's too, too direct, too surface. I think it gets much more difficult to talk about this movie when we restore the agency to the man. And we say like, no, he wants this. Yes. By the end, he's he's acquiesced. He's agreed. Oh, you know, th- this, he has consented. He's on board. You know, and like, and we we can even read this in terms of like the vehicle that they become, right? Right. The the metal fetishist himself is on top, right? Posed kind of like the Statue of Liberty, almost with a gun. Um, but but nevertheless, like that's almost vestigial. Right, he's he's he's, an or, he's he has an ornamental function, right? The vehicle itself, the base of this thing, the thing that makes it go, is the man. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That there's like it's very tempting to just like see this, uh, like very one dimensionally, but that doesn't. There are there are these contradictions and and kind of frictions within the things that we want. We don't ever really like if desire is always mediated and if you know, if the Lacanians are right about our fundamental ontology, which is that it's barred from itself, we never really know what we want anyway. Because what we want is, you know, desire is always the desire of the other. You know, we have to be taught what we want. We have to be shown what we want. Um, and in a way, isn't that what happens? Isn't the, the Iron Man isn't necessarily seeking just revenge, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about an unlocking it's like teaching a kind of des- the impartation and activation of desire. Yes, and I think this this is another really good point is that like love love is all about encountering the other, right? Like in in that the, there is this endless implication of danger, right? There, there's something irrecoverable from that because through the, through the process of being in love you will be woven into someone else and they will be woven into you and and exactly what you were saying that the the process is often disorienting and painful and confusing and conflicted and it's not this kind of 
Disneyfied love where where the the town's sweet little matchmaker gives you the wink and says you're with somebody now and then the two of you live a happy little life that's free of any grit and grease and grime. And, and Tetsuo is just such a beautiful way of of being like like I think I think your your positioning of this movie is something that's kind of educational. So something that is here to teach us something, you know, to to give us a, a to to do one of the things that horror is really good at and that's give us kind of a a mediated and safer way to learn some very painful lessons. Mm, yeah. And, and that, that's, I think, what makes it so successful. Any any final thoughts? I, I, I highly encourage everyone who has not watched Tetsuo to, to really, really get out there and see this movie. Um, un, unlike other movies with Iron Man in the name, it's not four hours long. Um, and the special effects are better. There we go. There we go. This this, this high minded conversation uh, ends with me taking a pot shot at uh, whatever phase three of the MCU. This is why people come to us. This is why people come to us. <laughs> How about you? Do you, do you have anything uh, profound to lead us out on? I, I'm not sure if I've had anything profound thus far, but like, uh, <laughs> it's it's a great film. It's super interesting. It's there are bits of it which are kind of funny. There are bits of it which are um really intense and it's this weird it, like photographically beautiful piece of work um if you've never seen it you absolutely have to track it down um yeah yeah just watch it see what it does see what it does yeah watch watch tetsuo watch the power rangers ivan ooze movie watch watch an ultraman couple episodes of ultraman and then, and then round that off with some like Showa era Godzilla, right? Just kind of, kind of, just breathe it all in. That's 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 what I'll say. Make make it make a day of it. <laughs> give give yourself a little Iron Man spa day. And for less than the cost of an Iron Man spa day, you can support <laughs> yes, the show from the that and Patreon horror. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. We'll see you. We'll see you next week when we discuss a movie about movies. There's another. There's another little hint of what we're talking about next time. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.